Hello, listeners. Yamina here. Welcome to the Dr. GPCR podcast. I'm very excited to bring you brand new episodes. To start, I had the pleasure of hosting Dr. Richard Primont. First, we discussed his career trajectory and then moved on to record a series of episodes in which he shared the history of the significant discoveries that shaped our field. I had such a great time chatting with Dr. Primont. I hope you'll have as much fun listening. Before we dive into this episode, I would like to take a moment to thank our Dr. GPCR ecosystem partners, Domain Therapeutics, GPCR Therapeutics, Design Pharmaceuticals, Montana Molecular, and Orion Biotechnology. Please mark your calendar for our next symposium held on Friday, November 17th, on the topic of GPCRs in immuno-oncology. The symposium is free, but you must be a Dr. GPCR ecosystem member, which is also free. For our last event of the year, we will be hosting a roundtable and discuss GPCRs and their role in immunology and oncology and current therapeutic modalities in this context. The GPCR retreat is coming up November 2nd to the 4th. Although registration is closed, the organizers are looking for the event's next logo. Please visit gpcrretreat.org and get more details on the logo contest. Wouldn't it be fun to have your design associated with this iconic meeting? And now let's dive into this episode. Welcome back to the Dr. GPCR podcast. Last week, you heard uh, the first part of our conversation with Dr. Richard Primont. This is the second one. I hope you're going to enjoy it. Let's dive in again. One, one, one kind of funny story I, I want to tell. So I, I was I was just about to finish my graduate work and a paper came out uh, from uh, uh, across the street. So I was at Mount Sinai. This is from uh, Columbia. And it was Linda Buck and Richard Axel uh, reporting <laughs> the olfactory receptor family because they didn't say here's here's the one olfactory receptor here's that's like those 19 receptors in their paper yeah. um, plus genomic blots showing that there's like a zillion more now we know it's like 800 yeah, yeah 400 something kind of, i mean rodent rodents have more it's like it's like 800 in mice um so the, the interesting thing about this paper right so so now here's a new sensory system that people didn't necessarily know was G protein regulated. So now poof, that's that's obvious because now that's what they are. Um, but it, you know, really changed the number of receptors because this huge, this huge family. Um the interesting thing is if if you if you download that paper, look, go to the very end and look at the submission date, right? So this is 1991, mm-hmm. back in the days of paper journals. There is no online anything, right? Three weeks between submission and not acceptance coming out in paper in the bound journal three, three weeks <laughs> wow okay that's uh so that, that's what happens when you have this is back when um cell as a journal was owned by and run by a guy named ben lewin mm-hmm. and when he wanted he made a decision he made a decision <laughs> interesting and so that's when he, when he we had an editor who could who could edit <laughs> <laughs> And it's like, yeah, I know this is exciting. This is interesting. This is, yes, we got to get this out now. So three weeks. Good. That's a record, I think. Uh, it, I don't know. Less than three well weeks. Be, yeah. yeah. Less and than that's, three so, weeks. So there's a revision thrown in there, too. It took, it took yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a potentially a review, yep, reviewers yep. involved, a revision, and, and think of there was no internet at the time, yeah. or at least 
Very they're sending limited. paper copies in the mail and somebody's got to retype set it and exactly the factory's gonna go yeah three weeks go to wow. the company. So, yeah um one, one other kind of funny story while, while, while we're on, on the on the kind of uh purification cloning phase so there's there are a lot of groups that are trying to do this right so I, i'm not gonna you know like i, I apologize to <laughs> the people i'm skipping over but what, what kind of funny story i wanted to wanted to mention um is there was one there was one group in particular that was looking at trying to purify the beta 2 receptor in particular and that was a guy named craig venter <laughs> at nih and they had he he'd worked with tethered ligands and things and he, he had you know, there were antibodies to receptors and he did some good progress um but then bob's paper came out and it kind of took the wind out of his sails um so they they kind of changed the lab a little bit and started to look at you know cloning other receptors and in one of those kind of really really weird twists of fate they're they're very very early adopters of automated sequencing machines so they had one of the very first a abi sequencers because they were at nih i guess they had the budget for it um so you know if you have a if you have a hammer you know everything's a nail so they had yeah. a sequencing machine and they wanted to keep it busy because they invest a lot of money. I mean, in if it. you buy it, you might as well. <laughs> and 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 receptors to sequence are hard to come by. So they did. They started to do this thing that that people, a lot of people, kind of ridiculed them for at first. But it was it was I think really kind of brilliant. Um, they just took a cDNA library and played it out. So they just pick one phage at a time, one clone at a time, and then just take that clone, grow it up, and sequence the ends to get a. To, and what they called it was an expressed sequence tag. Mm -hmm. um, so they did this for thousands and thousands of clones, building up a library of information about genes that are being expressed, right? So not knowing what they are, just knowing that there's a thing and it's expressed. And then when the Human Genome Project started as a government project, Craig left NIH, founded Human Genome Sciences and the Institute for Genomic Research, and kept doing the same thing with ESTs, and also sequencing full, fully through things and patenting everything. They patented every, you know, like every gene on the, on the planet. But they also, technically, I think they beat the Human Genome Project for sequencing the human genome. <laughs> so, um, so basically, we 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 have uh, in a way Bob to thank for <laughs> that because <laughs> um, he kind of you know Craig kind of left the field. Because it was yeah. getting, you know, it was just kind of, it was getting away from him, and he just moved into a different direction and was enormously successful. And you know, it's Bob's fault. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Love it. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So so as I said, we, the 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 receptor cloning kind of had a slow start because the, the 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 people were cloning things by homology to the couple that had been found and they're starting to find subtypes. Exactly. Um, and so that was basically the adrenergics and the muscarinics. And then this one oddball that turned out to be a serotonin, right? Uh, but where's, you know, where's the ACTHs? Where's the TRHs? Where's the chemokines? Where, you know, well, that was solved um, in 1989 when uh, a group in Brussels uh, headed by a guy, uh, Gilbert Vassart, yes. um, took all the sequences for all the GPCRs that were known at the time and line them up. And it's like we say, well, Rhodopsin looks like the beta receptor. 
and there are residues that are similar. But he looked at it very carefully and identified all the regions of the receptors that look the same, right? So your your famous, you know, there's like GN, GNXXV and membrane span one, and you know the salad box and two, and the dry motif and three, and on all the way through to NBXXY, right? And, yeah. and they took those sequences and made degenerate oligonucleotides. So up until that point, people had making degenerate oligonucleotides to actually radio label them and do hybridization to screen a library. They didn't do that. PCR, polymerase chain reaction, had just come out. And, and PCR as, as a concept is, is, is really has is transformed the world, right? So uh, kind of a digression on PCR. So PCR started um, with using a regular DNA polymerase, doing a reaction, and then dunking, dunking your tube in boiling yeah. water, taking it out, putting in fresh enzyme because you just killed it, step after cycle after cycle after cycle after cycle so there are no machines it was all done by hand yeah. uh, and you know among the first people to get it to work was a guy named tom kasky uh at baylor who you know actually figured they had they had like a machine that could do this wow thing. um you know this is before tac polymerase right so thermal stable polymerase so anyway so but but by this point thermal stable polymerase had come out machines had started to arrive so it was it was a technique that you didn't have to be crazy to, to do. <laughs> yeah. If you can imagine the, the, the hands-on work to, to get that to work in the beginning. But it, but it works. Okay. So what Vassart did was he applied PCR to GPCR discovery. So he, he took these primers that were able to bind to maybe lots of different GPCRs and just amplified. And then they were using, they used dog thyroid cDNA as their source and just amplified, took what they got, Subcloned all the all the bands, sequenced them, and in their first paper, they had seven GPCRs that they found. Right at the time, right, the primers are based. You know, the primers are biased toward the receptors you already know, of course. Yeah. So you get a lot of things you already know. So three of the seven receptors they found eventually turned out to be no. You know, they were immediately known, and four of four of them they they sequenced and complete. You know, did northern blots and all that kind of thing. Um, but they didn't know what they were. They were published as orphans. So this is the first intentional orphan paper where somebody went out of their way to identify orphans as GPCRs to see what's out there. They were specifically looking for the TSH receptor, which they did not get. Mm-hmm. But what they did get was adenosine A1 and adenosine A2 receptors um, and a serotonin receptor that it was not not the one one of the ones that was known. Plus one of your favorites, CXCR7. Yeah. I, you said dog, and I was like, okay, I think I know. Oh, what yeah, this... yeah, I remember that one. Yeah. Um, so that 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 really opened the floodgates because now you had a technique that didn't rely on you necessarily knowing anything about your receptor other than it's in the family. Yes. Right. So you could take different combinations of primers that are biased in different ways, and a lot of people did this um, and found all all kinds of receptors. So um, I think. Um, one of the ones I want to mention was that there was there was a group uh, in Canada, uh, you know, Brian O'Dowd, uh, who was a Lefkowitz alumni uh, with with Hiram Nizhnik, um, and they so they they did the same kind of thing after this. Uh, one of the things they found was D two long, right? Um, but they also found a lot of other receptors, and in in, in um, one of their papers that came out in what uh, 1994, uh, Adriano Marchese, who you've talked to was the first author of the paper that's the paper where they where they first say an orphan is gpr number yes 
So that's yes. where that's where that comes from. Um, but the, but the O'Dowd group they they identified you know dozens and dozens of receptors and then okay so now you got these receptors so now you have a different problem instead of having a ligand and a function you know a hormone and a physiological function now you've got a sequence yeah. it's the days of molecular biology you can express it you know but now you need to start searching what's the ligand what does it bind exactly and then for function you know all, all the other g proteins are starting they're also being cloned so now we knew that there was you know gq g11 g14 you knew that there was g12 g13 um gq is very quickly assigned to phospholipase c regulation mm -hmm. um so that that was good uh, it took quite a while for 12 and 13 to get assigned to activating row a and that that's also a lot of that was done by the the dallas group that's all a lot of paul sternweiss um hmm. so at some point you kind of had all the g protein effectors right um but there's a lot of you know a lot of potential ligands that you have to screen so people would look well where's this orphan expressed you know and it's like oh it's high in you know kidney but it's low in liver and what what have you uh trying to guess what it what it might be um, and as more and more receptors started to be identified with what their ligands were, um, you could start to predict, well, ah, this looks a lot like all the other peptide receptors. It's probably going to be a peptide. You know, the things like the, the, the TSH, LH, FSH receptors are like the, the, the um, adhesion receptors have these huge extracellular domains. So as soon as you see one of those huge extracellular domains, you know, ah, it's a glycoprotein hormone probably. Yeah. Um, and then all the, you know, the, the, the small molecules, the catecholamines, the, the, you know, epinephrine, dopamine, and the serotonin, all those receptors kind of clustered together too. Um, and then the oddballs are things like the, the, the one orphan that, that I published in clone turned out to be an LPA receptor, which is basically a lipid. The lipid receptors, it took a long time for them to be twigged <laughs> because binding assays are notoriously difficult and you, you weren't sure what they're coupled to. And it was, you know, and it's like things are activated by components in serum and it's just the background is high as kind of a mess. But in any case, it's over time, you could, you could start to take a guess as what it, what, what it is. Even today, you know, the, the orphans, you have an idea that, yeah, this is going to be a peptide of some sort, um, but you just don't, you know, no one's found what it is yet. Um, but it was, a, it was, a, it was an amazing age where, you know, just like now where structure is coming out all the time. It's like sequences are coming out all the time. Um, sometimes identified with their function, sometimes not. And um, it was, you know, it was kind of, kind of interesting days. So we, we had, uh, when I was in the Lefkowitz lab, we had, it was, it was, I don't know if it was GPCRDB when it had just started, but one, one, some site had started to collect all the sequences mm -hmm. and they had an alignment of all the GPCRs. And, mm -hmm. you know, we, we, we printed it out on like a hundred pages of paper and then take <laughs> the pages of paper together on the <laughs> so you could go and you see and it, and it turned out that you know if you look at it you could see that for all the gpcrs again which and this was all family a right the only residue that was 100 percent conserved is the r in the dry motif and there was wow. like one that didn't have it and, you, and i was like i'm, I'm sure that's a sequencing mistake there, you know because <laughs> You know, but that that's the one residue is that, is that arginine. Everything else varies, but within families is, you know, clusters of conservation. Yeah. Yeah. How interesting. So we went from using tissues to observe function, to then purify yeah. the components, to then put them together, to then sequence them and clone them. And then when we got to cloning and we started identifying more and more receptors, 
then the other end became a problem is that we knew what the receptor was, but we didn't know necessarily what the ligand was. Right. So it's, I think we went, we just went full circle here. <laughs> but, and, and then, but early on, right? So we, we, we had a list of, you know, all, all the endocrine hormones, all the autocoids, all the lipid factors, all the neuromodulators, you know, so we had a list of things to go through, but for the most part, we've exhausted that list, right? Yes. <laughs> so now the problem is you, you've got a ligand that you don't know what it is. And I think, you know, my, my bias is having, you know, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about metabolism and people are finding a lot of receptors that are responsive to metabolites. I think a lot of the orphans are probably going to be responding to metabolic products, but you, you will, you know, time will tell. Yeah. Love it. Um, Love it. Okay. So... <clears throat> So far, we've basically been ignoring the visual system. Yes, and, and and you'll notice this is not a not a an uncommon thing. I think that the visual the the, the visual signaling community I think got very slighted. You know, yeah. a, a lot of <clears throat> a lot of the things we know about the way these signaling systems work, they found first, and being second. And noticing the similarities counted for more than being first. So that that's kind of that's kind of where it is, but that's that's kind of sad. So I mean, among those things were, you know, the sequence was known first, you know, the G protein was known first, how how the system functioned, that the alpha was a GTP binding protein that separated from beta gamma, yeah. that that you know, how how the G protein then activated an effector. Um, all that was worked out first in the visual system. And, and beyond that, right? So Rhodopsin was crystallized long before the beta receptor. So people were making, you know, for years, people were making homology models of GPCRs based on rhodopsin. But yeah. <laughs> I, I remember that. I do remember that. I mean, that mm -hmm. first, first rhodopsin structure in 2000 was a big deal. Right. And then we had to wait a long time until the next structure would come out. And as you mentioned today, you have a structure well might not make it into nature yeah no unless there's something, something else yes it's got to be with you know now it's like it, oh it's not it's not necessarily with the g protein or the or arrestin it's got to be out of one thing i haven't seen right just just you know if you're if you're out there you know structural people do this there are some receptors right so when when, when i was in the lab i was working with randy hall who you've spoken to yeah. um and what he did was said well you know i think i think receptors he came from a neuroscience background where things are tethered and he thought, well, receptors probably are tethered. And he identified a protein that bound through a PDZ domain to the C-tail of the beta-2 receptor. It's a protein called NERF. Mm -hmm. um, and so we kind of got into this kick of looking at other things that bound to PDZ domains and other receptors that have target motifs for PDZ proteins. We don't know what those do for the most part. We really still don't know what those do for the most part. And, and, there, and there are other things, there are other proteins that... that are not cheap proteins and not arrestins and not GRKs that bind to specific receptors, not ramps, that bind to specific receptors. And I haven't seen a single structure for any of those yet. So, hey, you, you guys get working on <laughs> Yeah, all structural <laughs> scientists listening. Yeah, there, there, are, there, are other things, there are other things to look at. So uh, just as, a, as an aside. <laughs> um, so, but so kind of in my in my own career, right? So I worked on the GRKs, uh, a little bit on arrestins, but more, more on the GRKs. Um, so, Rhodopsin kinase was known as an activity in the in the visual system long before, and it was kind of the impetus for looking for bark or what's called yes. GRK2, right? Um, and 
by the same token, when when what's well, a kind of a funny story. So in 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 the identification of GRK2 mark, right? So this is Jeff Benedict working in, in the Lefkowitz lab. So basically what he showed is it was an activity that was able to to phosphorylate the purified receptor in a in a phospholipid vesicle. Right? So you have a phospholipid vesicle purified receptor, nothing else there. You add a lysate from a cell and hot ATP, P32 ATP, you could phosphorylate the receptor. And also, if you reconstituted that receptor with the G protein, with the GS, you could show that receptor-stimulated GTPase activity of, you know, the, the GP binding activity of the of the G protein stimulated by the receptor, right? That's what the receptor does, um, could also be inhibited by this phosphorylating activity, right? So they started purifying it by analogy to the rhodopsin, thinking that there's something like rhodopsin kinase. And they showed that it's not PKA, it's not PKC, it's not any of the known, it's not affected by any of the inhibitors of the known things. Yeah. Um, so they had they had a new activity and they finally purified what they called BARC and then now, now it's JRK2. But the, the, the kind of funny tidbit is, is during the purification step, and they, and they note this in the paper, right? During the purification, the more pure the preparation of the kinase got, the better the specific activity was to phosphorylate the receptor, but the worse it was at desensitizing the receptor. Interesting. Because they're purifying purifying away arrestin. <laughs> oh goodness, yes. So knowing knowing about visual arrestin, Jeff got some from somebody at probably Prisco Chesky, I don't remember who, but he got he got some from somebody and added it to his assay. And lo and behold, arrestin took the phosphorylated receptor and desensitized it. <laughs> so then that was the impetus to then try to clone Reston. Yes. So rather than try to purify it, knowing that, oh, it must look like this other visual system component, Martin Lose in the lab used the, you know, used the Arrestin sequence to go fishing for a somatic Arrestin, which they called beta, beta Arrestin. Arrestin wow. too, if you're, yeah. Yes, depending on, on what's cool. Yeah. So, so, the visual system has been, you know, very, very important touchstone, and and you know, there there are papers showing that, you know, so among the other things that that Rick Serion did in reconstituting the receptor was show that they they could barely, but but somewhat get transducin to work, barely, barely for the beta two receptor, but for the alpha two, which is an inhibitory receptor, right? So transducin GT is technically a member of the GI family, right? So for that receptor, it actually worked. Right, it actually could, you know, so that receptor could actually stimulate that that G protein. Um, so going back and forth between these systems and ha having those purified components available was a, was a very important thing that gave people points of entry into some of these things, like you know, being able to clone the arrestins. Uh, as it turned out, no, you know, rhodopsin kinase was cloned after GRK2 was already identified because it's like, oh, it must look like GRK2. Yeah, and then we can go back and, and figure right, out. The other, right, right, yeah, right. yeah. Um, so it. yeah, so it's kind of a, a an interesting exchange between the fields. But I think that in the end, the visual visual signal community's got the got the short end of the stick. Yeah, they did. I, I just think about Rhodopsin, and, and every time I try to do a Western blot to identify to to look at CXR three, for example, the positive control was always purified Rhodopsin. That right. worked so well. That was always so beautiful. Anything else I tried, forget it. I was characterizing GRK5, and we, most of it was done with rhodopsin because, you know, it was just, it was easier to get than the purified beta receptor was hard to get. Even, even recombinant was still hard to get back in those days. 
Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I spent a lot of time in the in the in the dark room with the lights off, playing with radioactivity, <laughs> getting those assays to work. But uh, yeah, fun times. Um, Love it. Okay, so a, a, a couple more kind of directions. So just one, one kind of funny anecdote, right? So when when they clone the beta receptor, um, so now you have you have so now you can express it. So expression systems were not very developed back in 1986. Um, mm -hmm. So they had the gene. They didn't have the CDNA first. They had the gene, right? And but so they modified it so they could express it and and they could they could you know make RNA from it using T7. RNA polymerase, yeah. or RNA, um, and they, thinking about what what expression systems were out there, they said, "Oh, you know, we used to do frogs." So this is return <laughs> return of the frogs. <laughs> so all the first experiments that Brian Kabilka did, looking at expression of the beta receptor, and then then the other receptors as they, as they were cloned and came on board, was all done by expression in xenopus oocytes. Right? Yeah. Um, where where they would you know make RNA from their various receptor clones and then starting to make mutations right mutations were hard to make at the time yeah and then the the methods got better uh, but yeah so um, and then starting to characterize you know what, where on the receptor does the ligand bind where does it couple to the G protein why does it have the pharmacology of a beta receptor versus an alpha and they started to make chimeras and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. When I say they, so Brian was the one doing all the doing the assays, but his wife Tong Sun was apparently the the master of in, injecting <laughs> the oocytes, and she would she would inject hundreds of them every day in order to make, you know, make enough material that you, I mean, all sites are, they're, they're pretty big. I mean, they're, they're, you know, but uh, it, it takes a lot of them <laughs> to do a, to do a binding assay, to do a functional assay. Um, so that's, so, so basically there was a, a renaissance of frogs. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think uh, we, under, we undervalue okay. their, their usefulness as a tool, as a system. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but then, but then, like like the rest of the world, you know, eventually everybody switched to HEK two ninety three cells because <laughs> yeah. they're they're, well, they're, they're terrible reasons. cells in a lot of ways. I mean, they're 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 bad at calcium signaling. They fall off plates if you look at them. Yes, <laughs> boy, boy, are they easy to transfect. So you know that 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 counted for a lot. Exactly. Hence, but, hence the rise of all the experiments where you only have to add stuff to it. You plead the cells. You don't look at them, and you just keep on adding things to them. And <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but but anyway, so so here here's the Lefkowitz lab, and they're doing you know literally thousands of eggs a week, injecting with RNA. So they're going through T7 RNA polymerase like nobody's business, and and even with Howard Hughes Medical Institute funding, Bob's like I can't afford to do this, you know. So they got a cDNA for the RNA polymerase mm -hmm. and started making their own polymerase. And the joke in the lab was that somewhere in a freezer, there's a million dollars worth of T7 RNA polymerase, you know, the street value. <laughs> the street value. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, they're, they're doing it so much that they, they had to have their own source. And in fact, that, that, that when, when TAC polymerase came out, people would do the same thing. Labs would make their own TAC because it was expensive, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. There was, a, there, was a, there was a licensing fee that you paid for doing PCR. Uh, everybody, even, even academics labs, that was built into the price of TAC. So people are like, oh, I'll just make my own. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's kind of a, a similar story in, in Tom Sackmar's lab at Rockefeller. So all of the GPCRs that are in the lab that I worked with as well have this 1D4 tag. 
And so we had the one anti one D four antibody, and we had milligrams of it. You could really the street. I don't know about the street value, but it was pretty high from from that <laughs> yeah. perspective, and it worked really well. And then you can you know you can uh, pull it down with it. You can detach it. It was just really an mm -hmm. awesome tool. Yep, yep. So that's <laughs> um, so just to kind of I mean there, there, I could I keep talking about various things for a long time, but I, I just want to go through kind of one, one last, it's not, it's not one experiment, it's one strand of experiments okay. over a couple of generations of postdocs and, and people in other labs um, to show how people characterizing receptors, how, how certain concepts kind of arose, right? So in the, in the Lefkowitz lab, I told you that um, they had um, purified the alpha one adrenergic receptor. It was one of the three subtypes. Uh, and the person that did that was, was someone called Susanna Kotechia. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so she started doing the same things that Brian was doing with the beta two, just starting to make mutations. Where where does the ligand bind? Why does it bind to alpha two ligands and not alpha one ligands and not beta two ligands and making chimeras and all these kinds of stuff? And one of the weird things she found is she made a mutation in the third intracellular loop of the receptor, kind of near transmembrane domain six, that converted the receptor into a receptor that was active for signaling without ligand. Oh, I love that. <laughs> so this was the first constitutively active receptor. Right. <laughs> so kind of from, from, from that beginning, what, having a constitutive active receptor, where, where, does, where did that go? What did, that, what did we learn from that? Um, so the first thing that happened was there was, there was, there was a, a medical fellow in the lab who was interested in cancer, on a guy named Lee Allen. And he expressed this constitutively active receptor, which activated phospholipase beta, so basically turned on calcium signaling through diacylglycerol, um, and did this 3T3 cell cancer assay, where you look you look for cells that overgrow yeah. and make colonies. Um, and it turns out this receptor, is, you know, they called it a, a an oncogene because it was positive in this assay. It basically, caused the cells to grow without stopping. So. Um, so that's yeah. kind of the first GPCR as a as a potential tumor thing. That, that's that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Please, I just want to uh, add. You know, when when I think about GPCRs in cancer, it took a long time, and it's still not sure. yeah. that well. Okay, so I think there was the GPCR field, and and people working on GPCRs in general, and then there is the cancer field. And the connection between the two is not as strong as it could be, considering right. the role of GPCRs in cancer. Yes, which is you know modulatory. I mean, they, they, rightly so. At the beginning, cancer was focused on individual mutation drivers. Yes, yes. But I think we're at the point now where I think it's very clear that one, it takes multiple hits, but two, equally important to having a driver mutation. So a, a cancer cell is in communication with its microenvironment. So it has stromal cells around, normal cells around it, stromal cells, that it is converting to a cancer cell phenotype, whether it's through you know, signals going back and forth through things like GPCRs or potentially through things like exosomes that are being secreted from the cell, but it, it reprograms the cells around it to create the environment at once. And if you can interrupt that, that can be a therapeutic, even, even despite the fact that the cancer cell has a driver because you can, deprive that cancer cell of the support and community that it, that, that it wants around it, right? So, and, and I think, so there, there's certainly a role for GPCRs in, in those kind of processes. And, you know, yeah. we'll see 
kind of where that goes. Um, so, right. So, so they had this, they had this constitutively active receptor set so at a single point mutation. They changed one amino acid. Um, and there was a student in the lab, uh, Mike Chelsberg. I think it was, was he a postdoc or a student? I don't remember now. But anyway, so, um, and, and what he did is he mutated that single residue in that one receptor to every single amino acid and then characterized their activity. And it turned out that the natural amino acid was the lowest activity of all. Anything else you change it to made the activity go up. Some things yeah. more than others, but every other, you know. So basically this receptor had been selected evolutionarily for that particular critical residue it had to be this to have a low basal activity and anything else you changed it to was going to have a higher basal activity. Which so really no, no wonder that that residue was in, was there. It was there That's for right. a reason. Wow. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I, I'm not that much of a structural biologist, but I think if you, you know, you go back and you look at what is that doing in the structure relative to G protein activation, it, it's going to be one of those very yeah. critical residues. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so, okay. So, so now you've got, you've got, you know, this receptor that's tuned to be with, with low activity and people still think, well, the receptor is, is off until you turn it on like a light switch. That's still kind of the predominant thinking. Um, but that's about to change. So what, so then another, another a student in the lab, Philippe Samama, um, made the equivalent mutation in the beta two adrenergic receptor, making the first constitutively active beta two receptor, um, is coupled to GS. Of course, it's not going to be an oncogene because it, it, it's, you know, cycling AP cytostatic. So fine. Um, but it it's constitutively active. And he started characterizing it um, and got some kind of, you know, une unexpected results in looking at it. So, so two aspects of unexpected, unexpected results. One, the, the way it acted was not quite what you would expect based on what was called the, the Ternary complex model, right? Which is something that Andrew de Leon had developed yes. when he was in Bob's lab years before. So Philippe started working with uh, Tommaso Costa yeah. and Philippe doing the experiments and uh, Costa doing the modeling. And so they have a paper on the extended ternary complex model. And I think of, of if, if you look at um, Google Scholar and look for Lefkowitz, it's got all kinds of reviews that I mean, I got, you know, highly cited reviews. The first actual paper, the highest citation is this because it really changed the way people think about how receptor allostery works, right? Yeah. So if you, if you change the ligand, you can change the way the receptor works. If you change the G protein, you can change the way the receptor works. But if you change the receptor, either by changing its level or changing its structure through other allosteric means, whether it be an allosteric regulator or a mutation, yeah. you change the way the receptor works. And that's really the first theoretical explanation for that. Wow. Love right. um, so, so they published that in, in 93. And now the interesting thing was, so now people started to really purify, you know, purify receptors from other sources. And among them was people were expressing receptors in insect cells, baclovirus and SF9 cells. Mm -hmm. And one of the people doing that was Michel Bouvier, right? So they, they, they were expressing all these receptors in SF9 cells, making membranes that had tons and tons of receptor. They started a company selling them to pharmaceutical companies for doing assays with. And one of the things they noticed is that if you have a receptor and you overexpress it high enough, it changes the basal activity. So you don't have to be mutated to be constitutively active, right? From a theoretical framework, if you have more receptor in the system, 
you push more, there's more of it in the active state, you see more activity, duh, right? Yeah. But this, this really shows that's true. If you, the more you increase the level of the receptor, the more activity you get out of the system without a ligand around, right? Yeah. And having identified that now, what Michelle did was like, well, let's see if we can antagonize this. So they dumped various antagonists on it. And that was where, you know, the, the idea of inverse agonism was kind of out there beforehand, but this really, you know, definitively showed it that if there are ligands that do nothing to the active state, so you add them to this constitutively active receptor and it does nothing. And there are other ones that are actually inverse agonists or negative agonists yeah. that decrease the basal activity because they shift the equilibrium yeah. receptor from active state to inactive state. Yeah. Yeah. So. I, I, I think it's wonderful. And I, I wonder, I may be mistaken, but I think this was, this was work well done within Michelle's lab, but by Gracilia Pinero, if I remember correctly from one of our podcasts, yeah. actually third or fourth podcast episode we mm. had. Yeah. So that was in like, what, what, 1984, 1985? No, no, 94. Yeah. 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 So, th th so the, the other kind of funny thing that happened is, so in the Lefferts lab, um, you know, we got medical fellows. So a medical fellow with not a lot of research experiment came into the lab. Uh, very nice guy, uh, Carmelo Milano. And he was a cardio you know, cardiology surgeon. So he's like the, he's not like the chief cardiac surgeon at Duke. Um, but he wanted to learn a little bit of research. Um, so he was given the job of making a transgenic mouse expressing the constitutively active beta-2 receptor mutant in the heart, okay? So someone hands him, here's, you know, we got we got the promoter from a myosin heavy chain cardiac version or something. Um, and then he did all the manipulations to put the receptor driven by that promoter, made the transgenic mouse. Um, never checked that the clone that someone handed him was in fact the mutated receptor. So it turned out, so that now you got the mouse and it's got this amazing phenotype. The heart beats like, you know, you know, the heartbeat on a mouse is like two or 300 beats per minute. This is like five, 600, it was crazy. You know, it was like on overdrive all the time, this mouse. Um, but when they started looking at it, there are things about it that the, the pharmacology didn't fit right with, with the constitutive active receptor. And they realized, oh my gosh, this is the wild type. <laughs> oh wow! So someone had handed him a tube and said, "Here's the here's the mutant." You know, and and just like the wild type, it's got the same restriction sites. You cut it out by the hands, the right size, everything looks good. And this is in the days when sequencing was, you know, you expensive and expensive, slow, radioactive. You read the bands on ladder on a gel, um, so you know it it wasn't sequenced. Um, so eventually, he made the constitutively active version of the mouse too. P.S. The phenotype in the wild type was a thousand times better than the constitutively active one because the wild type mouse, because it's expressed highly, is constitutively active on its own, right? Of course. <laughs> and the uh, constitutively active mutant, because it's constitutively active, it spends more time in the active state, it's less stable, it gets degraded. So in the end, the level of expression in the transgenic mouse with the constitutively active mutant was just a little bit above normal. And there was almost no phenotype, very little, very subtle phenotype. Um, so the phenotype, but the phenotype in the wild type, it had, it had like 500 times the normal expression, crazy, crazy levels. And that, that characterizing that mouse got them a paper in science. So this mistake 
That's about paper and paper and science. And of course, all, all the postdocs in the lab were, were gas. And it's like, oh my God, I'm going to sequence everything that anyone <laughs> ever hands me. And this is very good advice. No matter you buy it from AdGene, you get it from somebody in the lab, sequence, sequence, sequence. You make sure Always. that, oh my gosh. Always. We we yeah. had that happen to one of my co one, a colleague of mine during my master's. He spent the entire summer trying to detect a protein at the cell surface. Uh, and it was a construct that we received from a collaborator. And three months in, we realized that actually it didn't have the the it didn't have the transmembrane domain. It was a single <laughs> transmembrane. So mm -hmm. the protein was expressed, but he every time he would change the media to do the cell <laughs> surface standing, he was washing it off. Yep. Uh, this person is not in research anymore. I think well, because I was a frustrated. We've, we've, all, we've all been there and done things like that, but it just, it's, you know, so, usually yes. we make a mouse yes. doing it. Anyway, but it, but it turned out well for him. He got he got he got a science paper. But the other thing is, right, so now now they had this mouse that had the wild type, wild type receptor, has this great phenotype. They had the mouse that had the constitutive active receptor that was unstable. And what they did was now they said, well, there was this hint in the literature. There, there's this other literature, um, on like the, the the nephrogenic diabetes insipidus with the the V2 vasopressin receptor. Yes. Uh, it was actually Lutz Bernbaumer's wife, Marielle Bernbaumer, <laughs> was was a big person in, in in that area. But basically, what what they what they found is that if you add a ligand, you can stabilize a misfolded receptor and get it to go to the cell surface, right? So in the case of this constitutively active mutant beta receptor, if you add an antagonist to the receptor it now gets to the cell surface and the levels are higher. And actually the activity of the receptor goes up with the antagonist because there's, there's just so much more receptor there that's active despite the fact that there's a ligand that's supposed to be an antagonist on it, right? <laughs> so all of these things <laughs> came from <laughs> one mutation. Yeah, yeah. I, th I, I think it's, uh, I've always loved this field, but listening to these stories just kind of put, puts it into perspective as to how cool are these proteins and how one mutation, one mistake leads to, to discovering these phenotypes and better understanding these receptors. Great. Well, that's kind of, you know, I, I could keep on going, but I think it's, it's, <laughs> it's we've been talking a while and that's kind of uh, that's a, the a good dose of, of, of GPCR history. <laughs> <laughs> I think so too. I, I think it's a good dose. But as I mentioned, I know we're still recording because as mentioned before, we hit record. You're always welcome. Anytime you want to share more history, I'm pretty sure that all our uh, audience will enjoy hearing more about these because these are the things that either we don't think about on a daily basis, daily basis, or we don't even know that these things existed. Well, if you, I mean, if you, if you happen to be in one of the labs where some of these things happened, you'll hear some of the stories. Exactly. But if, but if you're not, you know, again, if you, if you wanted to go back and, and, and reconstruct the history of the field by searching PubMed, you're going to have a hard time because of name changes and, you know. Yeah. 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 So it gets, it gets kind of, I was like, you, know, you want CXCR7, you happen to, you know, I mentioned RDC orphan. Yes. And you're like, you knew, oh, RDC, I think it's RDC1 is CXCR7. Seven. Yes, which but is now... there are these, these alternative it. names that they, they, it just gets, you know, at some point it's, it gets hard to search back. Exactly, so, exactly. And I think now it's called ACKR3. So uh, atypical well, chemokine receptor 3, which um, is another way of calling it. And as things evolve, and you mentioned, you know, being second and having the beta adrenergic receptor cloned, 
as things evolve and more and more receptors are discovered, the nomenclature changes. Yes, we capture it in an IUFR publication, but then you can't go back into the initial publication and say, well, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is not how we called it, or this is now how we're calling it right now. Yeah. Thank you, Richard. This was an amazing. Oh, fun. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I did. I did. I'm pretty sure people are going to enjoy it as well. And thank you for taking the time to actually go back in time and read these papers and look up this information. Oh, well, as I, I mean, I, I told you kind of more, more, more privately at the beginning, you know, yes. I, I at some point several years ago, I had started to write a book on GPCR. So I, I was like the history of the GPR, GPCR is in the kind of state of the field because it's, it's there is no such a thing anymore, right? So, so my my most highly cited review is one that I wrote with a, with another postdoc in Bob's lab, Kristen Pierce, mm -hmm. uh, and and Bob, um, and it is the last review that actually covers G protein coupled receptors, and it still gets it gets cited every week. I mean, it's, um, but the field is too big to <laughs> fit yeah. in one thing, so it kind of needs a book, and so somebody needs to write the book. But I, you yes, know, kind of, kind of yes. Time. But I started yeah. at one point, and so I kind of started to refresh my memory for all these stories that I'd heard over the years. And... Yeah. I was just thinking about that. Somebody or people need to put their heads together and read the book. Well, I mean. Because I think it would be really cool. I don't know who has the time and who can help do that, who, but I think. Or who reads books. <laughs> well, I don't know. Audiobooks. We can have, you know, we can have, we can have okay, either. <laughs> people who, who made the discoveries or people who worked in the labs where these discoveries made read chapters. I think it could be a really, obviously it's it's a lot of work, but if we set that aside, it would be really nice to have a book mm. that captures the history of the field and also have it in an audio version right. uh, where we have yeah. select people, select celebrities of our field read chapters. Could be really cool. Which is why it's, it's sad you never got to talk to Mark. Yes. But Moving yeah. forward, anytime you get somebody with a lot of gray hair, you can add to your questions. Hey, what what cool stories do you know about what happened? Yeah, back in the day, and you know, you, you, who knows what you're going to turn out. <laughs> Absolutely, you know that's a wonderful idea. And I was thinking about it's been three years, and I think we need to upgrade our questions a little bit. They're pretty wide, but but mm -hmm. you make a great point. Um, thank you for the feedback. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time. I really enjoyed talking to you. Well, thank you for doing this. It's been, I mean, I, I enjoy listening to them too. So it's great. Amazing. All right. We're going to stop recording. Let people wonder what we're talking about okay. right after. <laughs> um, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Can I ask you for a favor? Please subscribe to our Dr. GBCR YouTube channel. Many of you come back regularly to watch our videos, like the monthly video edition of the newsletter, but aren't subscribed. Having more subscribers will help us get you more content. Thank you for joining us and listening to this Dr. GPCR podcast episode. We would like to thank you for listening, thank our guests for joining us, and also would like to take a moment to thank our team members, Attila, Ines, Monserrat, Ivana, Andreina, and Balint. A huge thank you to our Dr. GPCR ecosystem partners, Domain Therapeutics, GPCR Therapeutics, Design Pharmaceuticals, Montana Molecular, and Orion Biotechnology. If you like our podcast, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also leave us a testimonial at drgpcr.com slash testimonials. You can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter delivered directly to your inbox by visiting ecosystem.drgpcr.com slash newsletter dash sign dash up. Another way to support us is to share your favorite Dr. GPCR program with your network and colleagues. 
Email us with any questions or suggestions at hello at drgpcr.com. Until next time, stay safe.